This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, Fijian political parties gear up for a national election, but still no date yet for polling day. And this is the most oppressive election climate ever in our history and what I know is a team of sailors are taking the ultimate challenge, crossing thousands of kilometres of open sea on a traditional canoe. 26 days of sailing, traditional navigation has been such a pleasure for us to be the ones to host them, to give them a break. And new research says giant kangaroos were rowing parts of the Pacific alongside humans. It looks like some of these species did survive later. For tens of thousands of years after humans had colonised the island of New Guinea. More on those stories coming up, but first, Australia's federal budget will be announced on Tuesday, but already the government is foreshadowing a funding boost for the Pacific region. Initial details released by the Foreign Ministry show a $375 million increase to the government's election promise of more funding for the Pacific over the next four years. The ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jejets, say it'll take total funding for the Pacific to $1.4 billion over the next four years. Until we get to see the hard numbers on Tuesday, when the full budget is revealed, we, we can't say for sure how much money we'll be spent in total just in this coming year in the Pacific. Although I suspect, given the fact that the Pacific has been protected from aid cuts over the last decade and has been rising as a proportion of uh, government uh, development spending here in Australia that there's every chance that we'll see a large amount of money being spent next year in the Pacific, perhaps even a record uh, amount of money being spent in the Pacific. Now, Stephen, we're talking about broad figures here. Have there been, uh, do we know where this money is going and what's been allocated? Not yet, uh, because the government hasn't yet said exactly where this money will be spent. Again, we'll have to wait on Tuesday to see that. I suspect there'll be quite a bit of focus on things like climate adaptation, as well as some of the existing programs uh, that the government has been talking about. Uh, but we will have to wait for Tuesday for those details. Uh, we do have a few other announcements uh, that have been foreshadowed by the government ahead of Tuesday uh, as part of uh, as part of this early announcement. Uh, so we know, for example, uh, and some of this won't be necessarily um, uh, won't be necessarily counted as as foreign aid. It will be done separately. Uh, but we know uh, that, for example, the government will spend forty six million on funding the Australian Federal Police operations in Solomon Islands. Australian Federal Police and officers, of course, have been there for uh, for quite some time since November last year, almost a year. Uh, to help maintain order uh, in the wake of the, the riots that hit Honiara in November. We also know there'll be 30 million spent on a program the government announced to boost aerial surveillance in the Pacific, uh, $32 million to the ABC to expand ABC content and transmission across the region, uh, and $19 million for Australian Border Force officers to be posted across the Pacific. So that's the rough shape of, of what we've got so far. Uh, but again, still plenty of details to come. Uh, all we've really got at the moment is the headline figures and some of the government's messaging around that. Now, Stephen, I guess the big question that uh, people watching this would be asking is, are we seeing an increase in funding and this renewed attention in the Pacific? Is it because of the 
the the contest between uh, the U.S. and China, or is there more to this story with with the increase in uh, uh, aid? Look, there's no doubt that uh, that China's a big part of this, and the increasing strategic competition is a big part of this. And interestingly, when you look at the the language uh, that uh, the foreign minister put out uh, in the um, in the uh, press release that uh, that she uh, that she issued about this uh, about this announcement. It's pretty unsentimental framing. Um, the the foreign minister doesn't talk a lot about boosting uh, growth in these countries or protecting uh, people from the the ravages of poverty. It's got a slightly more strategic angle. So, for example, the the foreign minister says that uh, that they want to make Australia a partner of choice for the regions to ensure our security, our strength, and to shape the world for better. Uh, it also she also says the budget's a major step towards the goal of making Australia quote stronger and more influential in the world, and makes a very thinly veiled reference uh, to to China as well, saying without these investments, others will continue to fill the vacuum, and Australia will continue to lose ground in the Pacific, as we did under the Liberals and Nationals. So, publicly, that the government uh, is is uh, framing it at least in in terms of this budget as as a pretty clear geostrategic play, um, which is interesting because that's not something that the government is, is often keen to do. Now, of course, that might be partly because there are domestic sensitivities here. The government is conscious uh, that particularly in a, in a fraught uh, economic environment, that it may be vulnerable to domestic political attacks from the coalition about the need to uh, prioritise people in Australia before increasing foreign aid overseas. Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedget speaking to me there about the Australian government's funding for the Pacific. As Fiji moves ever closer towards a national election, opposition political parties say restrictive electoral laws are hobbling their campaign. And a number of political parties have joined forces in a bid to oust the ruling Fiji First government. They are promising to tax big business... But as Kyle Evans reports, they're also facing an uphill battle. A date for Fiji's general election may not have been set, but fevered campaigning is already underway. Savanatha Narumbe, leader of the opposition Fiji Unity Party, is taking aim at new laws pushed through by the governing Fiji First Party, which holds majority in parliament. I mean, there's no democracy here at all uh, in an election uh, climate, election processes. I mean... We, we look at the process itself, but if you look at, uh, take a step back and look at the climate of election, it's an oppressive one. And this is the most oppressive election climate ever in our history and what I know in the Pacific. You know, there are laws that you said that have been changed precisely not to make election more freer and more fairer, no, but to oppress the opposition. Uh, and that's the sad part, the, the tragic part of this. And we have to estimate our election promises. This, these are quite, quite oppressive. So election date, we don't know. It's not uh, announced yet. Yet campaign started way back in April. So this is uh, the kind of uh, uh, election climate that uh, Fiji is facing now. Under new amendments to the electoral law, political parties now must provide budget estimates for their campaign promises, specifically outlining spending plans and the source of their revenue. Mr Narumbe says that puts opposition parties at a disadvantage as, unlike the governing party, they can't access the civil service to help balance their books. However, laws, he says, restrict free speech worry him more. 
That's what democracy is all about, freedom of expression. And those are the two laws, I guess, that really limit quite seriously uh, the, the rights and the freedoms uh, in the Constitution. Yeah, one is the media decree, and the other is the, the public order. And those two are the ones that we will definitely review and repeal some of those uh, quite draconian provisions in there. Yeah, the independence of the media is an issue in this election. The Fiji Times is, to me, in my opinion, is the only independent print media in Fiji right now. And they have been uh, cited by government uh, for some of the things in the past that they have covered. And they are quite cautious now. And even in, in some of the issues that are sensitive and so forth, they'll stay away from it. And uh, that's a, it's a pity. I mean, people would like to know all the issues around any government, including the opposition, but they are not allowed to do that. The ABC has approached Fiji Times for comment. We're still waiting to hear back. Mr Narumbe plans to run in coalition with the Social Democratic Liberal Party, or SADELPA, to tackle issues like income inequality. SADELPA's leader, Bill Gavoka, says under a coalition with Fiji Unity, $200 million Fiji dollars will be spent to implement free tertiary education and to cancel student debt. We will pay off all the loans. Up to now, there's close to $600 million of outstanding loan uh, incurred over the years. We will, we will wipe it off and start afresh. So really, going forward, no one will be owing, owing any money to, to the government. All, all our young people will be freed from carrying the burden of debt. And how much would this cost, uh, cost the taxpayer in your budget? Would, it, would the taxpayer be able to afford doing all this? Uh, for the free tertiary, it's it's about two hundred million dollars. Um, we have uh, we have uh, the, the revenue plans in place that can enable us to uh, to pay all this. We're carrying it in no books. It, it'll be like a dead write-off. Huh? Would it mean raising taxes at all? Uh, our taxation will be reviewed. What we have in Fiji is uh, a lot of tax breaks. For the, for the big businesses, and that will be brought in line to be similar to what we have in the Pacific. I mean, Fiji's corporate tax is lower than Australia, than New Zealand, than Papua New Guinea, uh, lower than some of the island countries like Tonga and, and, uh, and our neighbours. Eh? Mr Gavoka's Sadelpa party is one of eight political parties contesting the election, one of which is led by his former Sadelpa colleague, Sidaveni Rambuka. That relationship ended sourly, but Mr Gavoka says he will consider working with Mr Rambuka again if no party wins an outright majority. There will, there will be 55 seats, and right now there are about 10 political parties uh, in, in contesting for the elections. Um, in the events, no one goes over the threshold of 28 seats. Uh, we will talk to... We will talk. We will talk. We, we cannot say for sure. Uh, who, who will be our coalition partner. But right now, um, Unity Fiji is a preferred choice right now. But we will talk. We will talk when we get to that. Eh? That was Social Democratic Liberal Party leader Bill Gavoka ending that report by Kyle Evans. And the ABC has also approached the Fiji government and the ruling Fiji First Party for comment. We're still yet to get a response. For the thousands of Pacific people who come to Australia for seasonal work, the income earned can be life-changing. But managing that money can be a challenge.
To address this problem, a program in Vanuatu is helping returned workers become entrepreneurs in their home country. Eliza Berlage with this report. After working as a recruiter in New Zealand for nine years, Roy Tinning knows how hard it can be for seasonal workers to reintegrate. Some of them, they don't get much money from their employees. And some of them get enough money, but that the problem is they can't manage their money. As long as they use their money until it's finished, then they go back again and work for another money. The Vanuatu vanilla grower is one of more than 30 graduates of Yumi Groham Vanuatu, an intensive business training and financial coaching course run through charitable association VLAB. We decided that we would like to help them, help them grow in business and how to manage their money and their businesses, that it will help them, it will sustain them in the long run. Mr Tinning says the skills he's learnt through the program have emboldened him to grow operations at his vanilla plantation. Yeah, it changed, it changed me and uh, it changed my business. And now I'm selling vanilla everywhere in town. People buy vanilla from me online and other products online. And my long-term goal is 2028, we will export vanilla. Program participants have started a range of businesses, from piggeries to poultry farms, sewing businesses, fishing, construction and retail. The name of the, of the program is Yumi Groim Vanuatu, which means we are growing Vanuatu in the local language. That's VLAB founder Marc-Antoine Morel. He says the weekly sessions, held over about 10 months, have a wide range of benefits for participants. More importantly, we've seen that the participants have also benefited from personal development. That means uh, a number of activities have enabled the participant to make uh, informed decisions, uh, to analyse risk and challenges... Uh, and maybe most importantly, to build their self-confidence. So I think the work that has been achieved and the results achieved have targeted both the personal and the business level and have contributed to uh, um, give them some hope and give them some capacities to become successful entrepreneurs. Mr Morell says the program, now in its second year, has sparked interest from other Pacific Island nations. We uh, have been uh, holding already discussions with uh, Timor-Leste and Kiribati, where there is uh, an interest on the part of the uh, government to establish something similar to what VLAB is doing in Vanuatu. So it's very interesting and very rewarding to see that uh, what is being you know, tested and piloted in Vanuatu might at some stage be replicated uh, in other islands of the, of the Pacific. The Australian and New Zealand governments have provided about $800,000 worth of grants to support Yumigrom Vanuatu until June next year. Pacific Islands Council of South Australia Chief Executive Takini Tavui says he's in discussions with Mr Morell to run part of the program in Australia. So uh, rather than having the whole program in Vanuatu, what Mark was thinking, and I certainly agreed with him, was to have part of it done here in Australia, which will help them prepare for it uh, a bit better. And as they return to Vanuatu, they just continue on that journey, on that path, and finish off the whole uh, program uh, with uh, VLAB in Vanuatu. So Pixar was in discussion with Mark and uh, 
seeing ways that uh, BIGSA could uh, uh, facilitate that process here in Australia. What might that sort of pre-program involve? Uh, so it'll be some workshops and so uh, an ongoing once a week, perhaps two to three hours a week, where the, a targeted group would gather at a location that we've identified across Australia and uh, having this uh, program where an RTO delivers that program, to the, that uh, the content to them in partnership with BIGSA. We obviously, because we're not an RTO, so we'll have to partner with an RTO to be able to deliver it. And uh, given that, um, because we're sort of in discussions in terms of the content, uh, whether it is in a category where it requires RTO facilitation or not. So that's the discussions we were having. But certainly one of the areas we were looking at is Pixar to partner with an RTO and then deliver the content to the workers in their locations. Mr Takini hopes to see more workers like vanilla grower Roy Tinning achieve their dreams. I guess one of the key components of our discussions are, is around sustainability. How do we maximise this opportunity where our, our islanders are going across to Australia and New Zealand to work and earn money? And so talking about the importance of utilising that opportunity, not just for bringing money back into the country, but how can we maximise that and create sustainable systems and processes and in our country to be able to empower them to participate in local and small businesses and, and develop their communities and their families and their homes. So th- this is where the discussions is, and that's certainly one of the very hot topic of and discussions at the, at the minute that I'm having with people in that space who want to see this initiative in Vanuatu replicated across the Pacific. Ireland's Council of South Australia Chief Executive Dukini Tuvui, ending that report from Eliza Bulaj. Sailors in the traditional canoe brave thousands of kilometres of open seas to travel from the Federated States of Micronesia to Cook Islands. Equipped with only the most basic of technology, the team left home in September and followed the path of their voyaging ancestors. Dubravka Volodaire with this story. In Cook Islands, Captain Pea Patai from the Okeanos Foundation is watching the ocean current. He's excited and a bit anxious about the crew. But coming to the Cooks, it's a very rare route to take because of, of heading into the wind. It's a difficult route, but um, it's doable. Although equipped with modern technology, he says the double-hulled canoe is modelled after ancient designs and the crew has used traditional navigation methods to find its way across the Pacific. Very much as accurate as, as a compass. There, there are other stuff that you have to use to get yourself on course. But the best steering time is at night time because you have, you have all the stars out. That's if they're out. And if they're not, then, then you've got to utilize the wind, the, the swells and, and other elements that, that are available to you. As a master navigator himself, Captain Patai says it takes a lot of commitment to learn those old navigation skills. It doesn't mean that you learn it overnight. Well, you have to be on the ocean sometimes to, to actually feel, see how the current moves and see how the swells coming and those other stuff. So it takes time. Ancient navigators explored the Pacific area in canoes and settled across the region thousands of years ago. More recently, there's been a revival in these traditional techniques. In the 1970s, a group started to rebuild canoes based on the old design, and they learned to sail using stars, waves, seabirds and the sun as their only guides. Captain Patai was planning to take part in this voyage himself, but had to pull out. 
the crew sends him regular updates of their whereabouts. On its way to the Cook Islands, the crew made a stopover in Samoa, where they were greeted by locals. We held a traditional Aba ceremony to, to welcome them. It is traditional that we, you greet them, you meet incoming Malanga with a traditional Aba ceremony, and that's what we did. When they parted, we had our captain, he had picked up a, a rock from that he always sees when he's out fishing. So he picked it up, put it on his butt, and he said, this is for you. Samoa Voyaging Society President Mimia Livia Black. It is exciting for us to have this incredible canoe sail from Micronesia to Samoa, 26 days of sailing, traditional navigation has been such a pleasure for us to be the ones to host them, to give them a break. The captain, Jerry Joseph, is a grandson of Mao Pieluk, who was the grandmaster navigator that taught the, the Hawaiian group of the Hokulea to sail in 1976. Dubravka Voladea reporting, and the crew on board the Vakamotu Okeanos Wakab arrived in Cook Islands shortly after that story was filed. Giant kangaroos and large panda-like marsupials may have been roaming Papua New Guinea's highlands the same time people were. For years, scientists believed that these giant animals became extinct in PNG about 40,000 years ago, about the same time humans got there. But a group of researchers are now challenging that age-old assumption. Marianne Farr with more. Tens of thousands of years ago, giant animals and reptiles roamed around Australia and Papua New Guinea. Possibly as many as 70 different species of giant kangaroos and giant wombats and giant flightless birds and big snakes and goannas. Professor Gavin Prudhoe is a paleontologist from Flinders University in Adelaide. He says for decades, scientists believed these large animals called megafauna became extinct 40,000 years ago, around the time when humans first arrived in the area. Because the larger animals are the ones that when you hunt them, you get more um, food per unit effort. And so you can feed more people. It's just more efficient. But Professor Prudhoe is among a group of researchers who are now challenging that assumption. I think to suggest that people would have come in and been all, all across the continent and then hunted these animals to extinction and all of them, every single species from every single pocket, I just think is a bit unlikely. The team has conducted new research looking at the bones of these giant animals in PNG. And the archaeological excavations that were done at Nombay Rock Shelter in the in the New Guinea Highlands were actually done um, in the 60s and most of, mostly through the 70s. Using new fossil dating methods, they're suggesting megafauna actually lived much longer, up until about 20,000 years ago. Professor Tim Denham, an archaeologist from the Australian National University, was part of the research team. The evidence that we're presenting is sort of at this stage is quite indicative. It's not 
100% conclusive. I think we'd need to do more analyses, more dating of megafaunal remains. But what this sort of research indicates is that it looks like some of these species did survive later. For tens of thousands of years after humans had colonised the island of New Guinea. He says the findings sow doubt on the assumption that humans rapidly wiped out megafauna in the area. You know, if we think about the diverse environments of Australia and New Guinea today, as they would have been in the past, you know, you had deserts and you've got tropical rainforests in, say, New Guinea. And I think realistically what we should be thinking is that when people came, okay, in some regions they may have had an adverse impact on animals very quickly, particularly these large megafaunal species. But in other areas, I think it seems pretty clear that some species of megafauna uh, weren't heavily impacted by people until much more recently. For Professor Denham, it's a significant development. The debate so far has been dominated by this idea. It's sort of a one-size-fits-all debate where all the megafauna sort of went extinct soon after people arrived here. And I think we need to sort of start unpacking that and looking in more detail to see exactly did people actually hunt these animals to extinction or was it, or was it much more longer drawn out process in which maybe people's activities, climate change and environmental change all played a role. ANU archaeologist Professor Tim Denham ending that report by Marion Farr. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening. And do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific. <music>